0: Hey, y'all. Thanks for joining us for another week of The Orange Card. I'm your host, Tyler Dudley. Let's say hello to our usual team. We have Jared Bomba. Hey, everyone. Aaron Fish. Hello. And Will Moyo.
1: What's up, guys? So I want to start off with something that happened on Thursday night. I had the opportunity to watch the Newhouse Seagulls. I live-tweeted the event, and they had a pretty convincing 3-3 tie. Members of our team, Jared, Tyler, uh, Peter Benson, Jose Cuevas, They did really well, I thought, and it was nice seeing them play soccer, and they played together. All this stuff going well um, made me miss playing. I actually, I'm playing in my intramurals coming up, so I'm really excited about that. So all of us, you know, we have a lot of talk, but now we're actually playing.
2: Who's the best player on the Seagulls?
1: Um, It's about to get. Definitely my professor, Roy (laughs) Gutterman. Besides that we'll have to watch Tyler a few more times okay.
0: definitely not it's Tyler I would I would like to argue that Jared you're pretty good Jared
3: yeah but I missed a sitter you and guys would are too
0: nice four,
2: I'd be like I'm the best
3: <laughs> look Aaron just because you're not on our team doesn't mean you can't be our best player.
2: <laughs> true true all right I like that well let's start
0: this week off so this week was a little rough for both orange soccer teams both men and women We'll be discussing what went wrong with that. The U.S. Men's National Team they announced their roster for their upcoming World Cup qualifying match against Panama. We're gonna wrap up the top ten things in world soccer, and then we'll take you into stoppage time, where our guest Jared Bomba will look at the soccer's reflection on the world's biggest issues. So let's start with the men. They had a 2-0 win at Holgate, which stopped their three-game losing streak. All that was good about that game was completely undone because they struggled against Pittsburgh which I don't think we expected. They lost 2-1 to one against Pittsburgh, and that gave Pittsburgh their first win in the ACC ever. I mean, they've only been part of the ACC since, what, 2013? But that was their first win in the ACC conference. This was also Pitt's first win against a conference opponent since their Big East win against Seton Hall in 2011. And it was Pitt's first win against a ranked opponent since 2008. What does this mean for the men's team?
3: It's a problem. Watching them play this week, it's ever apparent to me that there are quality players on this team. Individually, you break them down and they're typically much better than the person that they're facing off with in their one-on-one battles. So it's a little bit bizarre that they are not getting the results they want right now. And so while on one hand their failure to get results makes me think that this is a huge problem... Even in these losses, there are moments of individual brilliance that kind of make me think, while the things aren't good right now, they can get better and they can get back to where they want to be with the results they want.
2: I think part of the problem is that we are looking at this team based on last year. We talked about earlier what rankings mean when they come out at the beginning of the season, and that's just based on last year. And When you have such a good season from last year and it carries over into this year, and they're not producing what they did last year, it causes people to think, oh, oh, this is bad, this is really bad. But it's the ACC, and anything can happen.
1: You know, Aaron has a good point there. Syracuse, for they dropped 10, 10 places from last week. They're going to drop out of the, the NCAA top 25. And that is a complete correct thing, because they do not deserve to be in the top 25 after a loss to Pittsburgh. And we're going to speak in a few moments about upcoming games, but they're going to have to do a lot of changes on the field if they're going to want to get back in those rankings.
0: So they dropped in the rankings. They're After this loss against Pitt, they're going to drop out of the rankings altogether. Do you guys think that that ruins SU's chances to kind of move forward?
3: Well, no. Certainly they're not where they want to be right now. But last year, Virginia Tech got an at-large bid to the NCAA tournament, and they went three, four, and two in conference. Nine teams went to the NCAA tournament from the ACC last year, and obviously eight of those were at-large bids, as there's only one automatic bid. So, in terms of their longer-term goals, it's not all over just yet, but at some point, you just need to start winning games. That's the only thing you can control, and they aren't taking care of business right now.
2: What's the goal? What's the ultimate goal for any college soccer team?
3: Win a national championship.
2: Well, yes, but make it to the NCAA tournament. Right. you got to do that first. The ACC sends all 12 teams to the tournament. So, really, if if you win the tournament, you're in. But what the problem is right now is they're losing these games, so it makes it that much harder to get an at-large bid.
1: If Syracuse is going to match Virginia Tech's last year, they're going to have to win three games in conference. And their conference schedule is not easy. This is the toughest schedule. They could have got one of those wins – against Pitt, and no team has lost to Pitt in the ACC.
3: The real issue is, while, sure, a 3-4-2 in-conference record got Virginia Tech an at-large bid last year, none of those conference losses were to Pitt. Mm -hmm. So not only is that a missed opportunity to get three points, in terms of your larger RPI and where you sit in terms of getting at-large bids, losing to a team as bad as Pittsburgh is a double whammy.
2: They're gonna have to pull off some really big wins against big teams,
0: and I think they've lost. We talked about it, at the beginning of the season. At the beginning of the season, they were what ranked eighth, and then they dropped into twenty first going into this game against Pittsburgh, and now dropping out of this. I feel like they've lost games that they shouldn't have lost, and I just I don't understand. So, like like I said, they started off really well. Do you think that their performance against the Colgate game? Kind of created this sort of illusion for them, or do you think that they played well?
1: I think they played well. Last, you know, Monday an away game we touched upon last episode that we needed to see Syracuse score in the first 15 minutes. Hugo Delamel has a chance, left side free kick, puts the ball far right hand corner, get that early goal, and from there a lot more movement in the midfield was nice. Um, the players kind of they clicked, and watching that game really showed me that. They have a chance. They are a good team when they play together as a unit.
2: But Colgate is not an ACC-type opponent. They're not as good as the teams that they will see in the ACC.
3: It was good to see them perform well and score a couple goals. The offense on Tuesday night did look similar to the juggernaut that we saw a couple times early in the season. But if you're, say, Liverpool, and you're trying to at least act like you're one of the big boys in English soccer— not directing this comment at anyone.
1: Well, liar.
3: <laughs> if that's your objective, you don't judge yourself by whether or not you beat Wolverhampton in the League Cup. You judge yourself by how you perform against the Manchester Cities and the Manchester United of the world. And Syracuse, to their credit, has earned a place, at least in the conversation of those top teams in the ACC and the country. So they don't want these results against Colgate. Sure, they want to win. But the big games are the ones where they just haven't delivered yet.
0: Well, then what actually happened against Pitt, what do you think led to their loss, considering we thought, and I'm
2: pretty sure they even thought, that they were going to win? We have been talking about, for the past few weeks, what the issue has been with this team, and it's defending. And, I mean, the first goal was just losing track of the attacker, they, they weren't in good position. And, I mean, it was a beautiful header by the pit forward. But they need to be able to deal with those services in.
3: They have an even bigger problem than that. And it's something I've been really harping on week after week, much like you've been talking about defending. And they just cannot keep the ball. Yeah. I think there was a little bit of a tactical thing going on against Pitt. I think that Hagman is performing Probably the best out of everybody on the team. I would say so. He's been great. And I think they wanted to get him a little further up the pitch. And as a result, that meant that Buchanan, who was playing wide right, and I can't remember who they started wide left.
2: They switched to a 3-4-3. They played a 3-4-3 against Pitt.
3: So we had the wide players a little bit more withdrawn. Mm -hmm. And I think that just kind of monkeyed with... They're attacking shape a little bit, and that's already been a problem. So they weren't able to really keep the ball and take advantage of opportunities in the front third. But then the biggest issue is that with the midfield a little bit more advanced, the defense couldn't keep the ball either, and that's a whole separate issue. The second goal came entirely from a really just bad giveaway by Ricks in the back. Ricks, we froze the picture, and there was no reason in the world why he should have given that ball away, so he gives it away. They chase his back. Credit to him, he chased down the pit attacker. But he gets cut up, and then the kid hits one in the top corner, and that's that. Defending's an issue, but it's not easy to defend when you can't keep the ball in the front half or in the back half.
0: So you're talking about not keeping the ball. I remember watching the game, and I feel like they just had no connection in the midfield. They could not get a pass across. Do you think that, Aaron, you said that you were playing a 3-4-3. Do you guys think that that has to do with coach McIntyre telling them like this is the formation and kind of encouraging that or do you think that the players should be able to adjust and if they don't have this connection what what can change they should be
2: able to adjust and Jared said that giveaway it was a square ball we have been taught since we were how old that you should never play a square ball because the defenders are going to read that and that's just what they did and then then you're on your toes trying to get back to stop the shot
1: one thing that we've spoken about a lot on the show is that it's a young team yeah and I think that coach Ian McIntyre has tried to change things up multiple times during games before games to see what works and we are now in October and we still do not see what works for the team and the team still is struggling to find their identity on the field, whether it's four at the back, whether it's three at the back. So I think it's on the coaching, and I know that it's difficult to see because it's a young team and we're being very judgmental. However, I don't know how easy it is for a player to adapt if one half you're playing this way, one half you're playing this way, if there isn't the on-field chemistry.
2: So do we consider this a rebuilding year?
3: No. You watch the game and you see so much talent out there. I can think of a couple times where John Buchanan just turned a guy once, twice, and then, I don't know, poof, something goes up in smoke and he's a little flustered and his shot goes 20 feet over the bar. All I'm saying is when you have this much talent and you've had performances to the quality that they have had earlier in the season, you have to think that if we can put this lightning in a bottle when it matters most, they can get the job done. There are a lot of new faces, sure, but... I think that there's too much talent to say, you know, we're just going to accept less than, you know, an NCAA tournament appearance this year.
1: With this being my fourth year watching Syracuse, as a fan, I don't know if you can call this a rebuilding year, especially if it wasn't called a rebuilding year at the start. I think Coach McIntyre looked at the eighth ranking and said, this is the team we could be at this level. However, that cannot be an excuse you know At the end of the season, let's say they get knocked out of the ACC tournament and then subsequently don't make the NCAAs. I don't think Coach would go and say, oh, I considered this a rebuilding year the whole time because that not only looks bad on himself and the coaching staff, but it looks bad on the players.
0: So having said that, do you guys see them beating any ACC teams now?
2: Yeah. I mean, you can't count anybody out in the ACC. Coach McIntyre actually said every game in the ACC is a doozy. On any given day, anybody can beat anybody, so I would not count them out.
3: I think that's fair. You're right. Anybody can beat anybody. But right now, can I see them beating anybody? No. They're not going to face a team worse than Pitt. And while Syracuse struggled, it's not like this was the best performance that Pitt has ever made. I came in assuming that Pitt was bad, which you know biases me from the start, but Pitt was bad. How many times did Pitt just pass the ball to Syracuse? It
2: was terrible. It was it was
3: both defenses were just willing to give the ball to the other team's offense. It was disastrous. So it's not like Pitt played the game of their lives.
2: Okay, but did Syracuse come in underestimating them? Like you just said, going in, you thought Pitt was going to be bad. Was Syracuse thinking the same thing? I think that could be a possibility.
3: Yeah, considering the lack of intensity, but there's also other things to consider there traveling to Western Pennsylvania, playing on turf.
2: Yeah, turf is big.
3: There's a couple different things there, and I don't want to crawl into anybody's head and assume this thing or that thing, but the fact is they're not going to get a better chance at three points than they did at Pittsburgh.
1: Syracuse, their next ACC game is NC State home October 6th. NC State started the year beating Clemson. Syracuse need to have one, if not two, big wins coming at the end of the season at, or excuse me, home against Clemson at Wake Forest. They need to win both of those games in order for them to kind of get those key wins to then solidify themselves going into the ACC tournament.
0: Well, I think going into – they play Akron on Tuesday, and Akron's a pretty good team. So I think going into that, they could potentially gain some confidence from that game, especially coming off of this loss considering, like we've all said, like we thought Pitt was going to be really bad now as far as the women go they only had one game this week and sadly it was against uh the university of north carolina who's ranked number five orange lost seven to zero that's that was pretty bad they conceded as many goals against unc than they had in the rest of the regular season played this year alone now the women we've been talking about defense the women have looked defensively pretty solid
2: so far what do you guys think happened in that game? Was it poor defense? I mean, yes, but they're also playing a top-notch team like UNC, and they have not been challenged with those kind of services all year. Most of the goals came off of services into the box, and Syracuse just couldn't handle it.
1: Courtney Brosden made 11 saves, and she gave up five goals. 11 saves in any game is, it's good, yeah. is amazing. And she only played 61 minutes after letting in five goals. That just
2: shows the pressure that was put on this girl.
1: (laughs) Right. It's
3: disappointing, though. Talking about the Clemson game, which is the last game they played, there was all this service into the box. I watched the game, and between throw-ins and set pieces, they probably dealt with 40 balls into the box, and they conceded zero goals. I don't know exactly what you attribute it to. I don't know that the balls into the box from UNC were any more intense.
2: But who was at the end of those balls? Who was who was putting a head on and that? And that's fair. That's the difference.
3: But at some point, seven and zero on, let's call it an equal amount of service. I think that UNC probably had less service, actually. For the difference to be seven goals... It means that there is an issue with the marking. That is what that means. It doesn't matter who's on the end of those balls because I don't think that seven Clemson players had a chance to shoot, much less score.
1: My first game in high school as a freshman varsity goalie, I conceded four goals in 25 minutes, and I was absolutely devastated. (laughs) And I will never forget that. And (laughs) fortunately for Courtney Brosnan, you know, she conceded five goals. She made eleven saves. She should be very proud of herself after her performance. Watching some highlights highlights might not be the right word. Maybe it should be lowlights. Lowlights low lights, but dim lights. <laughs> watching, you know, her positioning was great. Her she was confident was you know, some balls just one step out of the way. And there's not much really you can do as a goalie for some some of those.
3: Yeah, the one where it bounced off the post and hit her, that's
1: just unlucky.
3: That I mean it's really tough. So and that reflects to the whole team as well. It's hard going down to North Carolina, one of the probably historically the greatest women's college soccer program. That's not an easy thing to do. So while seven goals is far too many to give up, there are some mitigating factors there.
2: They also have not played an away game since August twenty seventh when they were down in Florida. That's big. To have to go travel to, like you said, a place like this, that's hard. What do the women have to do to bounce back from
0: a loss like this? They conceded four goals in the first half. That's a lot. Seven goals total. How do they come back from this?
2: I actually have experienced a 7 nothing loss before at this level. I My team went down and played Florida Gulf Coast in a... Uh, non-conference game early in the season my senior year at liu brooklyn and we were losing 3 nothing in the first half we kind of went into the second half thinking all right we might be able to get a goal and get something out of this hope. little hope but um they ended up just dominating us in the second half even their second string came in and they were so good so it's one of those things that you can't it's a tough pill to swallow when you actually lose 7 nothing, but you can't sit there and dwell on it you have to move on from it
3: There seemed to be a bit of a pride issue. I know that while I've never taken a 7-0 defeat, I've had some losses, obviously, but like everyone. But I just have to think that if I lost a game 7-0, I would be, I don't know, a little bit upset, hurt, angry. It just didn't seem that way. And it kind of signals a larger issue to me. Syracuse... This year, they came in like we have these senior leaders that are good players and we have really talented freshmen coming in. This is our year to make our mark as a contender in the ACC. And then for them to, I don't want to say take this lying down, but not have the intensity to deal with a shellacking like this, its it seems like a cross-communication.
2: Okay, but like I said, it's a tough pill to swallow, but would you rather lose a game like this? Or would you rather lose a heartbreaker in overtime when you're playing a team like this?
3: I would absolutely prefer to have the heartbreaking loss. The heartbreaking loss is going to sting a lot worse for about an hour and a half. And then you're going to walk off the field knowing that you just took the number five Tar Heels to the wire and they needed some late game heroics to beat you. That's fine. But if you get smacked 7-0, that might not hurt Quite the way that a two-one overtime loss would hurt, but that 7-0 loss loss—it follows you into the shower, and then it follows you onto the bus, and then it follows you into the shower the next morning, and then it follows you to class on Monday, and then it probably follows you into the newspaper, and then suddenly it's—it's a—it's just that that is a much longer-term hurt, and it's a pride thing. It hurts your pride okay, okay, more than on, it hurts no, your feelings. You're
2: wrong. You're wrong. <gasps> Two to one. Losing 2-1, to losing by one goal, is much worse than losing by seven goals. Because then you have that feeling in the shower, on the bus, where you're like, I was that close to beating UNC.
3: I I completely disagree. Not only because 7-0 is 7, and (laughs) 2-1 is 1. Not only because, you know, math.
2: Oh, I'm glad you know how to do math, Jared. (laughs) But
3: I just... Think we have a philosophical difference about this because I would much rather take the brief stinging pain That's of a two-one loss. I'm sorry
0: if that is so, not Jared, a brief pain. Jared, you said it follows. It basically follows you. Do you think? So do you think that ride home was pretty difficult for them? They they just lost 7-0. Will
3: <laughs> <laughs> waiting patiently.
1: I Will.
0: don't want to <laughs>
3: hear Jared talk right now.
1: <laughs> so my worst loss as a high school goalie. Was a 2-1 defeat. Because I thought if I made one more save, it could have been a tie. If I made two saves, it could have been a win for our team.
2: So Will agrees with me.
1: Will's making his own point.
2: So it's easier to to come off
0: a closer loss than it is to come off like a bigger range? So
1: at Franklin Marshall,
3: we developed a pretty big rivalry with Dickinson while I was there. My... Least pleasant college soccer memory was losing 3-0 to Dickinson my sophomore year on their senior day at the opening game, played on their new field. We didn't get along. Their fans didn't like me or any of my teammates. And so to see their upperclassmen chirp in the face of our younger players, that hurt. And that would have become a longer sticking point in our rivalry if it hadn't been for the fact that my teammates and I all carried this into our next year and the next season we beat them three times twice on their own soil, one of those times 4-0. Nobody remembers the 2-1 yes, overtime. Nobody? Yes, you do. When those I are think the games you remember the When most. I think uh, when I think about the best win that season, it's a 2-1 win over Dickinson in the conference okay, championship. So what's the but difference? hold on, let me finish. Let me finish. Okay. Me finish. okay. okay. you're just going to keep talking <laughs> <again>. When I'm <laughs> thinking about why we took the upper hand in that rivalry, winning a tight conference championship game in overtime was obviously huge. But knowing that we took them to task and whomped them 4-0, that was the chest bump moment. Like, we're better than you. And we know it. And sure, winning a conference championship in overtime, one of the greatest memories I have. But when it comes to a rivalry, I imagine it hurts them way worse knowing that we smacked them 4-0 than us beating them in overtime in the conference championship.
2: Okay, this is how I'm going to settle this. I'm going to say, yes, we have differing opinions on this, but they're different emotions that you feel when you get when you have a loss like this you have you feel angry and when you have a loss that's close it's it's heartbreak and it's it depends on what you think feels worse i think heartbreak feels worse than anger
3: a 2-1 loss says something about you in a 30 second spell a 7-0 loss says something about you over months years
2: Mm, i disagree
0: well so (laughs) last. That's really hard. <laughs> so last week, we were talking about them being able to compete in the conference. Going off of the 7-0 loss again, how badly do you think this sets them back?
2: I don't, because I think it was just a bad day against a really good team.
0: Do you think at one point, they were kind of just like, you know what, like they're down at the half. Do you think at one point, they were kind of just like, you know what, like we're just going to try our hardest to do whatever we can, and if we lose, we lose, because they're ranked number five in the conference
1: syracuse had they had eight shots on target it's not like they didn't have any chances unc registered 26 shots 18 of them on target forcing courtney brosden to make 11 saves and i'm going to keep saying this because 11 saves in 90 or excuse me not even 90 minutes in 62 minutes is unbelievable it could have been 11-0 it could have been technically 18-0. 18-0. to
0: Could have been way worse.
1: Referring back
3: to the any given Sunday thing, I think that there is enough talent on Syracuse's roster for them to get results going forward, but going back, this 7-0 loss sticks with you. That's a confidence thing. If they can go into the next game with confidence, kudos to them, and they should because there's quality in their side. But that 7-0 loss, that doesn't just leave your psyche. There's going to be some sort of band-aid that needs to be ripped off if they're going to have the confidence to play well in their next game.
1: It is noteworthy as well that their opponent, the Pittsburgh Panthers, just got off a 7-0 loss themselves. So they're going to have two teams Thursday night Coming that are— Coming off a
0: 7 loss.
1: Correct, and they're going to have to figure out how, first of all, to get a goal, but also how they can move forward as a team— in a difficult ACC schedule
2: yeah it's who is going to bounce back well
0: it's certainly been an interesting week I know there was a little bit of arguing but it's okay guys it's okay you can we can agree to disagree <laughs> yes. on this one I think we're gonna have to
3: Aaron, I'll forgive you like next Sunday
0: Okay. <laughs> well so for Syracuse soccer that's all the time we have for today after the break we're gonna take a look at the men's national team and a bunch of other stuff that happened in U.S. soccer welcome back a couple weeks ago we talked about the importance of the final two world cup qualifiers for the u.s. men's national team these games are now coming up the u.s. they play their last home game of this campaign against panama in orlando on friday the U.S., they've beaten Panama by a combined 10-0 to in their last three home qualification matches against them. Do you guys think that they'll keep this dominance asserted?
1: Yes. I think that when the U.S. play at home against a team like Panama, it's going to be really solid. And I think as a fan, they have a history of doing well, and I don't see that not continuing.
2: They're going to need to to continue this dominance if they want to qualify for the World Cup. If they don't win these next two games, they are not in control of their own destiny.
3: I love talking about how the U.S. national team has historically done really well in important games, but when I think of teams that are really difficult to play in CONCACAF, I actually think of Panama. Looking at that roster, it's just a bunch of guys that I personally hate, and I've never been in the same time zone as them, probably. Blas Perez plays in the MLS. He's a real pain. Godoy and Beloy are enormous center backs, And that gentleman, Quintero, who plays wide right for them, is maybe the fastest human being I've ever seen. So I know their players pretty well from watching a lot of these games. I'm glad the game is in the U.S. because this Panama team is a tough team to beat.
1: With one point in their last two games the u.s are going to need to go out and attack 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 and get goals because there's a lot of worry right now within the u.s fan base that something could happen and they will not make the world cup
0: well the roster just came out bruce arena just released the roster
2: yesterday were there any big noticeable changes that you guys noticed uh yeah Fabian Johnson was excluded. That's a huge decision, seeing as he has 57 caps. He played 78 minutes on Saturday. Do you guys think that that's a fitness issue? What, why do you think he was excluded?
3: I don't think he played that well last time around. He is probably the best left-sided player that the U.S. has. He certainly plays at the highest level in Europe compared to the rest of the guys that will play on that side for the U.S., but it's crunch time now. And I think that Bruce Arena is just like, you know what, if I can't count on you, you're not going to make the lineup.
2: Okay, but will they want him for Russia if they do qualify? Yes. But you need to win these games now.
1: Correct. They will win, in my opinion. And excluding Fabian Johnson is a difficult decision by Coach Arena, but they need the best players to play on the field. And because of that, excluding him might turn beneficial for on the field. I hope that someone steps up and takes the place both on the field as well as off the field leadership that Fabian Johnson would have. However, we need to see that. The person that I'm hoping steps up is Benny Failhaber. That's the one
3: addition that caught my eye. I remember Benny Failhaber scoring the game-winning volley against Mexico 10 years ago in the Gold Cup when everybody thought he was going to be the next great American thing. That didn't quite pan out, but he's had a pretty solid number of caps. I think he's in the mid-40s, maybe 47 caps now. He's certainly a player that I think can bring a little bit of attacking flavor and a lot of experience. He's 32 years old now, so I'm hoping that he can make the difference. And I don't think that Benny Failhaber will go to Russia should the U.S. qualify, but it is the form against quality thing. Fabian Johnson's the better player, but Benny Failhaber right now is the better fit. So that's why he's getting the nod now and probably won't if they make it to Russia.
0: Well, I think despite Fabian Johnson not being on the roster, I think Coach Arena, I think he's got his core guys and I think he knows that he has the guys that he needs to essentially just do the job, as in Pulisic. Thank you. Will, I know <laughs> that makes you happy.
1: It was very nice to see there, weren't a core, there wasn't a core player that got injured and since the last time, and that's Knock very beneficial.
0: Yeah, <laughs> right? What if they lose? Oh, <laughs> That was just like a sound of heartbreak, Jared. The
3: thought distresses me. We've been saying for weeks, it feels like years, but it's only been weeks, (laughs) that at some point you can't put off winning. Mm -hmm. You just need to get points. This applies to every soccer team up and down the line, but when you're trying to qualify for for the World Cup, it's that much more important. I do not have any desire to go into the game against Trinidad and Tobago knowing that we need any points to assert Our spot. Jared likes his blowouts.
2: He likes his blowout wins (laughs) so that he doesn't have to feel emotion. You know what?
3: I would do just some outrageously large amounts of sprints for the U.S. to win 5 0 at home against Panama, solidify at least a place in the playoff, and really do themselves a lot of favors. Because right now, we've been saying, can they win? Can they win? Can they win? It doesn't matter. They just have to win. They
0: have to. They don't think they have a choice. Now, going into their game against Trinidad and Tobago, do you guys think that they're in trouble?
1: Something we've touched upon is the difference between home and away for the U.S. national team. The away game last time round, they did not win. They had the tie, and they are going to need to go into that position again. And this time, a tie will not work. They're yeah. going to need. They're going to need six points their last two games to solidify their place like Aaron said. Mathematically it doesn't matter. They need wins.
2: I mean they're definitely making it interesting. We're not going into this thinking oh yeah this is cake. They're making us talk about it.
1: The good news
3: is not only is Trinidad and Tobago bottom of the table right now which does bode well. It's also of the places in CONCACAF it's one of the easier places to go and play. Certainly easier than a Honduras or a Nicaragua or Costa Rica is difficult but that's also because I would say they're the best team in CONCACAF right now. So going to Trinidad and Tobago I think is a good thing to have last on the schedule. I already said I don't, it, I don't want to I don't want it to come down to that. I really don't want it to come down to that, but I think it is good to have that there.
2: Yeah, you can't underestimate teams like that though. Well, that's it for the U.S., so hopefully,
0: I mean, I know we all hope that they win against Bonamon. We'll see on Friday. Now, on to the World Game. This week in our Top 10 Things, as always, it's been a busy week of Champions League soccer, as well as there have been some really big games in Europe's Top 5 leagues. So, first off, to go off of will stoppage time from last week, Maureen Marley was appointed the interim head coach of England's women team. She was the former Everton ladies coach, and she will now be in charge of two World Cup qualifiers against Bosnia, Herzegovina, and Kazakhstan in November. She replaces Mark Sampson, who was let go by the English FA last week over allegations of safeguarding. As far as more fires go, uh, Carlo Ansoletti's tenure at Bayern Munich ended this week after a 3-0 loss against PSG in the Champions League. The three-time Champions League winner has become the first manager to be fired before October in Bayern's history. The English teams, they remain undefeated in the Champions League. Chelsea, Manchester City, Manchester City, and United, as well as Tottenham, they all grabbed wins. Uh, Liverpool, however, favorite part of the week, struggled in a tough 1-1 draw against Spartak Moscow. Any thoughts, Will?
1: Going to Moscow... And getting a 1-1 result, in my opinion, is a good thing. I know that CSK Moscow played Man United and Man United won. However, for Liverpool, two draws, and I believe are their two most difficult games in the Champions League, is a positive. And I'm going to stay positive because yesterday they tied 1-1 and that didn't make me feel good against Newcastle. Um, they're missing their chances up front, and they have Firepower, Firmino, Sala. Sadio Mane came back now, so he'll be back in the Premier League, and Coutinho. And Coutinho's really been carrying this team. I need to see more of Firmino. I need to see more of Sala on the wing. I just need goals. I need to see goals. <laughs> I and they
2: need to see goals. Too everyone not just needs
1: you. to see goals. Yeah. I'm glad
2: you're staying positive, though. I mean, good for
1: you. Smile on my face. Yeah,
3: Will, way to just accept and be happy with mediocrity.
0: (gasps) (laughs) Anyways, Real Madrid handily beat Borussia Dortmund in Germany to leave Los Blancos and Tottenham very much in control of Group H. Uh, Dortmund will try to bounce back against group underdogs Apolo Nicosia while Madrid and Tottenham will clash in Madrid for the top spot of the group. Madrid's Spanish rivals Barcelona, they managed a 1-0 win against Portugal's Sporting CP. The Lisbon club, they still remain second in Group D, despite not causing the Spaniards very many problems. However, this is unlike the weekend where, despite a comfortable 3-0 victory over Las Palmas, Barcelona, they were forced to play behind closed doors after there was a little bit of a political unrest in Catalonia. Uh, Barca, they maintained their 100% record this season with Lionel Messi grabbing two goals in front of an empty Camp Nou. I know Jared's happy about that one. Former Inter Milan defender Willy Sagnol, he couldn't help Bayern Munich in the Bundesliga this weekend. The interim coach saw Munich throw away a 2-goal lead to drop more points in the chase for their 6th consecutive league title. PSG they strengthened their firm group on Ligue 1 with a 6-2 thrashing of fifth-placed Bordeaux. The Parisians remain the only undefeated team left in the French league. In the Premier League, there is a battle of giants that took place at Stamford Bridge as Manchester City visited Chelsea. Uh, Man City, they eked out a 1-0 win to maintain their place at the top of the table in an exciting end-to-end battle. And finally, Manchester United, they continued their stellar start to the season as well as an easy 4-0 win over Crystal Palace. That was to be expected as Palace's miserable 2017-2018 campaign still remains goalless through seven games.
3: This is the part of the week I like to call the Palace Burning Dumpster segment.
2: Oh, nice. Yeah. They are
3: now <laughs> at 630 plus minutes of soccer without scoring. You ever watch like a train just hit an unoccupied car on the train tracks cuz it stalls no, and everybody and everybody everybody runs out of the car and there's no danger to anyone but you just watch it anyway. That's a little bit like watching Crystal Palace is like...
2: Where did you come up with right. that analogy?
3: Well, it's it's because that's actually what I was thinking as I was sitting there watching <laughs> the game through squinted eyes. It's tough watching Palace. They're actually, like, 12th in the prem in shots. And Christian Benteke is a talented striker. They should be scoring goals, but uh, they're not. And so just watching them struggle, and it really is a struggle. With all the talented players they have, it's really tough. 630-plus minutes, that's... Uh, That's quite a streak without any goals.
1: Just want to add that Christian Benteke is a Liverpool reject.
3: Anyways.
0: (laughs) That's it from the World Game this week. After another short break, Jared's going to go ahead and take us into this week's stoppage time.
3: Somebody with a significantly higher IQ than myself once said that Art imitates life. I think it was Oscar Wilde. So yeah, somebody a lot more intelligent than me. All of us here at the Orange Card, we love soccer for a similar reason. It rewards preparation and execution, and it mimics the uncertainties and gray areas and doubts and tribulations of real life. In less esoteric things, it also has a large indicator for geopolitics, which I happen to have a passion for. Didier Drogba, he's famous for promoting political unity in the Ivory Coast. Celtic versus Rangers, this is more of a divide than a unifier, but it's frankly one of the most intense rivalries in the world, and it's centered around how the British treat Catholics in Northern Ireland. There's no doubt that politics is a driving force in football, and football can be a driving force in politics. We saw this in the most visible setting possible this weekend. We earlier mentioned that Barcelona played their match behind closed doors because of political unrest in Catalonia. Essentially, the Catalan government called a referendum where all the people in northeast Spain would decide whether or not Catalonia would become an independent state. The Spanish central government, located in Madrid, which also houses Barcelona's greatest rival, Real Madrid, Spanish government outlawed this. And police were apparently being pretty brutal, cracking down on polling places throughout Barcelona and the rest of Catalonia. This is a story that already has plenty of chapters. During the Franco regime, FC Barcelona was marginalized for a long time, weren't allowed to play in all the competitions. And by Franco treating Barcelona as a symbol of independence for the people of Catalonia and Barcelona specifically, it in turn was a self fulfilling prophecy. And in the interim years, this has become more and more true. When you're in Barcelona, you see two flags hanging out windows. There's a flag with the Barcelona crest, and then there's the red and yellow striped flag, complete with blue triangle and white star, that is the sign and the flag of an independent Catalonia. Personally, there's a part of me that wants independence to not happen, because I've read that Barca may not be able to play in La Liga If they do secede, but I also know that I don't really have an informed opinion. I've never lived in that part of the world and there are real issues at play here. So it's not really my place to have an opinion. But as Barcelona has allowed Catalonian independence to have an identity and a symbol, even since the 30s, it gives us a reason to be glad for football and its place as a unifying force in the world. So in the coming months, as we continue to consume soccer, let's celebrate the Dutch obsession with fine art and fine passing the Brazilian desire to self-express on and off the field, and the South African obsession with dancing on and off the field. So much positive influence comes from the world's game. So bringing it home in the coming weeks as we watch these big matches, let's everybody unite behind the USMNT and remember that there are still things worth cheering for here in the US.
0: Thank you for that, Jared. That was, I mean, I completely agree. I think there's so much that comes from the from soccer in general and i think here at the orange card we all agree with the building of relationships that we've gained from it um well that's it for another week of the orange card be sure to follow us on twitter and instagram at the orange card su and be sure to subscribe to us on itunes until next week it's bye from aaron thanks tyler will thank you and jared
3: bye-bye
0: i'm tyler dudley thanks for listening